0: I'm Art Miller. This is
1: Art Class and it's about to begin. Please take your seats. Welcome to the North Shore podcast, a podcast about the lovely cities of the North Shore, featuring topics like local news, sports, music, people, food, and history. My name is Pete, and I'm Joe, my co-host, North Shore history legend, Arthur Miller. We all live in the North Shore. Before we start our class, we have a sponsor for the show, Dakota Insurance Group. They've got your back. Why? Because that's what friends are for. Dakota Insurance Group handles all your residential and commercial insurance needs Get a quote now at dakotainsurancegroup.com. Okay, one of the goals of the podcast is for our listeners to learn just a little bit more about the North Shore. Well, who better to teach us about the North Shore history than Lake Forest and North Shore history legend Arthur Miller? Okay, everyone, take your seats, put your seatbelts on, fold your hands on top of your laps, keep your hands inside the tour bus. The tour is about to begin. Art, how have you been? I've been just fine, thank you. How are you? Oh, I'm on uh, the edge of my tour bus seat because this is the fifth se- segment of our series. Is that true? And last. And last. Okay, could you start us from one to four? Where did we start, and where were we went? Where are we ending up?
0: We started out down in Chicago, going north along the lake. It's called the Lake Michigan Circle Drive. A lot of what we followed. It's Sheridan Road, and. We, it was a road that was set up in the 1890s, conceived in the 1890s, as an alternative military road originally for Fort Sheridan, um, so that they could get material into the city. They had the train track, but they wanted also this road, and as Michael Edner's 1988 book, Creating Chicago's North Shore, explains it's really what knit the North Shore together for the first time. Before, it was just a bunch of little stops along the railroad track with different whole communities in them. But this created more of a sense of a North Shore community. And, you know, the area between the lake and probably Green Bay Road or so all became kind of one unified community in that period. We we started in Chicago. We went up Sheridan Road uh, after the end of, of the DeSable Lakeshore Drive, as it's called now, uh, into Evanston, through Evanston, past Northwestern, um, which I happened to pass last Saturday during their homecoming event when they actually won the game. Yay, Northwestern. And <laughs> uh, ooh, 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 kept going. We went into Wilmette, to, then to no, to no Man's Land, which is north of Wilmette on there, and then into Kenilworth uh, and Winnatka, all on the first trip, up only the southern part of Winnetka, the lower part. This is before the Bluff start. The next program started as you went up the Bluff, where there was the famous Lloyd House, which originally had a view clear down into Chicago there, then down into the ravines and back up, Um, then through Glencoe, past the synagogue, past the golf course and past the lakeshore, Country Club, uh, into Highland Park, past Ravinia, um, into downtown area, although we went on Linden around downtown, saw the First Presbyterian Church of Highland Park, then up through Sheridan Road into Highwood, went along Fort Sheridan, talked about Fort Sheridan, then into Lake Forest, Sheridan Road there, Lake Forest College, Presbyterian Church, um, some old historic houses, the Winter Club, and we got up to the edge of lake bluff and that's where we're going to pick up now so if you play these in sort of in sequence they can be kind of like a tour they make a, a tour that goes along with the speed of what you're going so let's see if we can if we're not driving too fast get through lake bluff now lake bluff originally lake, back in 1892 the sheridan road went straight north from where it is now, along what's now Moffat Road into the middle of the village of Lake Bluff. It later moved from the city at the town line there, uh, straight west to the railroad tracks, just like it had done around um, Fort Sheridan. It went straight west of the railroad tracks and then straight north from there. And we're gonna follow that along as it goes along there and tell about what we see. Now there also there were the tracks on the other side. There are the Northwest, the, the Chicago Northwestern tracks that became the Union Pacific and Metro. And there's a bike path that goes through there, pretty much shrouded. You don't really notice it. As you turn north again there, as you after you've passed through the neighborhood there, heading west, as you turn north, you'll notice that there's a long, there's a wide band of just green space, almost park-like land. To the uh, east, uh, maybe it would have been the equivalent of a couple few city lots. What happened was those lots were held back when they developed that land in the 20s and 30s. They were held back. Uh, The story I've heard is is that Lester Armour, who built an estate north of the village of Lake Bluff, wanted to have it look more park-like. This was the city beautiful era when people were trying to make things look really nice. And so he um, had them build that park-like space up as far as where the train station is, Scranton Avenue, which is the main street in the village of Lake Bluff. Lake Lake Bluff is an old community dating back to the 1870s. Um, It was started after the Chicago fire as a Methodist summer camp meeting sort of um, camp, and, and the, the lot, the first lots, well, there still are, there are tiny little lots that they were there, and most of the modern houses are on two or three of those original camp meeting houses, lots. The um, the little, little wooden, uh, not winterized cabins have pretty well disappeared now, um, and some of the older houses are still there, but they were on more lots, they were more substantial, and they've been winterized, um, but it was a Just a kind of a a, a street plan that was different than Lake Forest. It was just a grid street plan for the east side, Um, and it went up to Sheridan Road. The train station was the kind of end of it there of the community, and Scranton was the main business street. Um, There were stores along that. Um, The city hall is a block left, block south, which is to the um, which was built by an architect named Tomlinson, who was part of the Prairie School group. Uh, built their their city hall early in the 20th century. And gradually, those cabins yielded to better houses. Now, that little village, that little clustered village was Lake Bluff. Um, By the turn of the century, soon after that, by 1910, certainly, for a while, there was polo on the lakes, just north of Lake Forest on that Moffat Road. Um, The polo was being played. It moved to the Alencia Club, and by 1910, there was a bunch of lakes. There were five lakefront estates that went in there between the village, the, the Lake Bluff, what's now the Lake Bluff town line. Uh, five estates that had big houses built by famous architects like um, Harry T. Lindeberg from New York, um, David Adler, Benjamin Marshall, who built the Drake Hotel. Was one of them a lot of apartments in Chicago very luxury place and Daniel Burnham and Company built one of the the farthest north of the five estates south of the village and then along Green Bay Road further west those there were estates all built up there also by An people. So the Lake Forest in effect and this won't make the Lake Bluff people happy, but Lake Forest curled around that village with its big estates, and went clear up into North Chicago, especially along Green Bay Road. And so you have Lake Forest type estates where there's now a property owned by Great Lakes Naval Training Station. The village of Lake Bluff is one thing, and we go past that when we go north on Sheridan Road. But then as we go further north, we we run into the last working farm on uh, the Lake Michigan shore. That's Crabtree Farm. Uh, it's between Sheridan Road and the lake. Um, it's had, I think, three or four, four owners since 1860. It was a gentleman's farm starting in 1860 for Judge Blodgett. Um, he sold it in the early 1900s, or I guess he passed away as the state sold it to the Scott Durands. Mrs. Scott Duran was a little bit obsessive about having a modern dairy operation. It outgrew her farm on Crabtree Road in Lake Forest, and so she moved it up there, took over Mr. Doctor Blod, uh, Judge Blodgett's farm. She built a new house there. Uh, they had a fire. Um, they lost the barns. She built a new house with uh, Hugh M.G. Garden, a famous architect who built a lot of houses in Lake Forest back in 100 and some years ago, but then when the barns burned in 1911, she had Um, Solon S. Beeman built a series of dairy barns um, in a Dutch style, very striking Dutch style. The roof roof is made of red tile-like looking concrete tiles. Um, The walls are stucco. It looks very Dutch and it influenced a later architect that worked on the property too, David Adler. Um, He used it for Um, a garage that he built down at the Lasker Estate in Westlake Forest, uh, Southwest Lake Forest. Um, So it was very influential, very striking Dutch-style farm. In the modern era, it's been recycled from being a a farm building, a gentleman's farm building, into being um, a sort of private museum owned by, started by John Bryan of the Sarah Lee Corporation. He He created a museum there that's just exquisite. It's internationally known, but not so much locally known. You can't just show up at the door and say, I want a tour, you have to go as a group. So a lot of Lake Forest groups have been through the place. Every year, the Historical Society and the Lake Forest Preservation Foundation are offered tours and people can sign up to go on these tours and they're pretty impressive. Even during COVID, they had tours. So you can see the inside of those buildings And then in uh, 2011, 100 years after the Solon Beeman buildings were built, uh, John Bryan built an additional building to the north um, with John Vinci, the Chicago architect. Vinci was student of Mies van der Rohe, did a lot of work, has done all kinds of work in all kinds of styles around the Chicago area. But this is a very good modern house that is consistent, This summer house of his, that's consistent with those barn buildings, looks great. And around the barn, all around this farm cluster, there are uh, very elegantly developed um, gardens. So uh, he worked with Charles Stick on some of the gardens that are to the south of the farm group. And north of all of this, he has new gardens that were developed by a man named Wertz from Belgium, who's a very famous international landscape architect in all the books. And they did these fascinating... Waterscape ponds in the meadow, and then where there's a there's a hill there and everything. Very interesting to visit. Also, Brian was the guy was in tr- basically took responsibility for raising the private money for Millennium Park in Chicago. Uh, he was the one who tapped people to come up with major cash to make that park happen. And one of the things was that he wanted to. They, they you know we all know the bean. That's the big central piece at Millennium Park. Kapoor, the guy that was the sculptor, had to um, kind of audition for it or, you know, demo for it. So he brought a piece of what it would be like. This reflective material, and that sample is was held by Brian. He kept the sample, and he's incorporated. He had Verts build a garden, especially to house. That particular thing. He's got 3,000 European hornbeam plants, hedges uh, involved in creating this special garden for this piece of the bean. And so it's really, it's almost worth a trip there with a group just to see that little sample of the bean and and get your picture, get to take a selfie inside there with the green. In all different seasons, it's interesting with snow, with the green branches, or with it open kind of in the winter to see Beau. Uh Fascinating setup that he did. That's really, it's known across the Atlantic, and it's known in the East Coast. It's less known in Lake Forest, which is really interesting. And everybody should watch for announcements about the Historical Society and the Preservation Foundation running tours next summer to be sure to go and uh, see that. because. You know, it's just like people who live in Seattle have never been up in the needle. People in Chicago don't go to Navy Pier. (laughs) You know, this in Lake Forest and Lake Bluff, we don't know Crabtree Farm enough. It is a top-ranked site. It's it's not as grand as the um, Chicago Botanic Garden, but it's of that quality. And the buildings of the museum are exquisite. One, I was once doing a project with Mr. Um, Bryan, and I went to meet with him about it. And we met in one of the rooms that he would recreated out of this barn called the Lodge. And we were sitting on—it's uh, a collection of arts and crafts um, furniture, mostly or mostly by uh, the American Gustav Stickley furniture. Uh, what we, some people call it, Mission furniture style, Mission style furniture. And uh, he has. He doesn't just have Stickley furniture. He's got Stickley's own furniture that he made for himself uh, that he's collected. Um, and I was sitting there at this meeting, and then they said, would you like a Coke? And I said, well, sure, you know. So I took a Coke, and they're sitting with you. You know a mission chair has a big flat arm? And yeah. I said, before I put this down on this arm, is this an important chair? And he said, well, it's worth about a million dollars. I oh. said, oh. I can.
1: <laughs> coaster, <laughs> coaster, please. Yeah.
0: I just held the can, you know, and tried not to breathe too much in a million dollar chair. But there's an incredible collection of, of wonderful art there. Uh, there's also stuff by William Morris and other key figures, W. Uh, Voysey, another person who was uh, an important guy from that period that in England people in England, he's got some of that stuff on display. There's a workshop there where they create their own stuff. It isn't just a dead, kind of a place with a dead interest in craft. Um, He has, there was a, there's a craft guy on site who builds things for people, uh, including Brian. He collects modern stuff too, a lot of it from England, has had done that. He died a few years ago, but it's still open, still available. And it's an incredible site. So that's um, just north of the, the first there's a forest that's kind of in um, conservancy as you go north of the village of Lake Bluff. Then you come to the white fences for Crabtree Farm, and then you go past that. And then behind all these gardens and buildings, there's um, cows, polo ponies and things grazing in the fields. So there's like this 200-acre farm there. And there's a few houses on the bluff, but basically it's this enormous farm. Uh, At least in our neighborhood, 200 acres is a big area. Mm -hmm. Wyoming, not so much, but here it's big. Um, So um, as you go north further, there's a property that was owned by the Uline family. Uh, They called them Uline in Illinois. They were famous brewers in the 19th century. And in Milwaukee, they pronounced it E-line because it had umlaut in there. And so it's E-line in Milwaukee, because that was, I think, Schlitz, maybe, Blatt's? Yeah. Schlitz, go past their estate, but then there's the large estate that was um, Philip Armour III's estate. He built it, no, I'm sorry, his brother Lester Armour's estate. Lester Armour's estate, it's called Armour Drive, which you see there now, and someone's recently bought the house. It's an immense house on the Lake Bluff by David Adler in a Georgian style, Um, You can make a little detour down there to just see a little bit of it without going onto the property. And that house was built. It's an interesting story. The J. Ogden armor kind of ruined his fortune. He was the second, before World War I and into World War I, he was the second richest American. By the time 1923 came, by him trying to shore up the the commodities markets after the kind of had a depression after the war, he lost his whole fortune. His family, he, took, he didn't just lose his money. He lost the company's money. He lost his wife's money. He lost his nephew's money, Philip and Lester. He lost all God's children's money. And so you could imagine Thanksgiving 1923 was kind of strained. He ended up going abroad. He died in 1927. His wife spent the next three years paying off his debts. She sold all her own kind of property, family property from the East Coast that she'd had. Um, She ended up penniless. All they did was a guy in 1930, riffling through papers that had been his, found some penny stocks from 1910s, uh, before World War I. One of them was for a little company called Universal Oil Products. It was a penny stock. By 1930, when he found it, this was Universal Oil Company that owned the patent for ethyl gasoline, super gasoline, and it was going through the roof. When they sold that, J. Armour had lost in 19, by 1923, two hundred and fifty million dollars of old dollars, you know, before they devalued the dollar. They sold Universal Oil Products for twenty-five million dollars in 1930. Now. In 1929, if you had a hundred dollars and you bought something for a hundred dollars, you could buy the very same thing for $10 or less in 1930. We had deflation that you wouldn't believe because all the money had been sucked out of the monetary, all the monetary system had drained out all the value. So if you had $25 million, you had at least as much as G.R. had had in 1923 and so when everybody else was poor as church mice and couldn't buy anything, the Armors were high on the hog. They were great. They built new places. Mrs. Armor, who'd lost her Melody Farm estate, which is now Lake Forest Academy, she built a great big David Adler house across the street from the Olympia uh, Club saying, I'm back. I'm back. See? See how I've got this th- two and a half story <laughs> house, this enormous house overlooking your little club? I'm back. Philip Armour completed his house that he planned in 1916 at Tangley Oaks in Lake Bluff uh, off of Green Bay Road, a vast Tudor-style house. Um, It was so big that the staff, the staff stairway in the back was like a school stairway where you can walk on both sides going up and down. It was immense um and lester built his home on the lake and that's what we were talking about lester lester came back into cash and of course they were very wealthy that house was the setting for the movie the wedding i think in the 70s you can probably still find it on somebody's streaming service someplace yeah. um and uh it's just phenomenal there were books done about adler's work that feature it steven salney did a book in 2001 that's got great pictures of the Leicester Phil- the, uh, Armour House. There are pictures of the, the, the landscape in several different books also. Um, so uh, it's definitely a site. So as you go further north from there, uh, there are a few other smaller estates. There was actually a camp in there where they used to bring, called the Gads Hill Settlement Houses Summer Camp. They brought kids out from the city in the summer. Uh, the landscape was done by Jens Jensen, and I think the architect, Larry Booth, has a, a summer place there, or kind of a weekend cottage, you know, that he has there. And there are other things there, too. But then north of that is the, the next big thing, the next to the last big thing to talk about, which is the Shore Acres Country Club. Shore Acres was started, I think maybe they organized it just before the, the World War I started. Um, and it didn't do anything about it until after World War One. And so Great Lakes Naval Station, Naval Training Station is north of that so after the war was over they bought some surplus buildings to make into the locker rooms and david adler then built them a clubhouse about 1923 or so on the lake Uh, some of us older people from the community remember the original thing it looked kind of like williamsburg type stuff like it looked like it reminded me of a tavern Um, at Williamsburg, actually, like the Raleigh Tavern or something like that. It was in that early American uh, enthusiasm that people had at that point in the 20s, just like John D. Rockefeller did at Williamsburg. It burned in 1984, and then Larry Booth, the architect, rebuilt the thing, um, basically keeping the same style but making it a little bit bigger and not quite as tight so that it's more suitable now for the club. It's this. It's a. It's a building that's on the lake, uh, but before you get to the lake, you go along this you wind along on the way along the south edge of this immense golf course. This beautiful golf course that's laid out, shore acres. What happened was as golf got more and more popular, and Wencia, could you could only have so many people teeing off at once, and in Wentzia, people had started a club at the south of of Everett Road in Highland Park, called the. Um, Old Elm Club, and that was just for men only. Um, and this club was started also in the 20s. That was in 1916, I think, that the Old Elm Club was started. This was going by the 20s, when golf was kind of at its height in that period, and they needed more places to tee off. So a lot of the people belonged to Inuencia, maybe Old Elm, and also Shore Acres, so they could go to all these different places to play golf. It's a fantastic course, it's still very popular, It's got this wonderful, big, expansive lakefront area or a shoreline along there where it's located. And uh, it's one of the great sites. Now, the last thing I'm going to talk about really is the Great Lakes Naval Training Station. North of the golf course is a little neighborhood that was built as part of the Shore Acres concept and was developed with houses up there. And you have to go through the golf course, down close to the lake, and then wind through the golf club buildings to go into the neighborhood. Um, so it's pretty protected and it's kind of hard to inobtrusively say you're lost and find your way in there. Um, but if you have an occasion to go to the club, you can see some interesting houses up there, but I don't recommend everybody going up through there. If you keep going north, you come to a place where there's a stoplight and you can circle around and go down. And you'll see to the, um, north of there around there some red brick georgian style buildings these were done during world war one by the architect edwin hill clark now edwin hill clark is famous in lake forest for um the lake forest library which has been much discussed lately he did that in 1931. Uh, 1930 he did um, where the senior center is at the groves campus in 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 town and he built oh probably nine or ten houses in lake forest at least uh, that are very nice. You, you, you'd recognize them if you saw them. Uh, so he was a pretty important architect. He lived in in, in, Winnet, in um, Winnetka. He built a big tower in Lincoln Park, a little bit north of Monroe Harbor. That if you're going along in Lake Shore Drive, you'll see it over there. Great big Gothic tower, kind of a carillon tower for bells. So he was well known. But this, so he did this wonderful ensemble of buildings for Great Lakes Naval Training Center. Now, the idea of Great Lakes Naval Training Center originally was to have a thing there, but it grew tremendously in World War I because the federal government in Washington that was going into war over in um, Europe wanted the United the people in the Midwest to know there was a war. So in Chicago, you'd see all kinds of sailors on their day off or on their, when they had their, whatever you call it. Um, yeah. And they would run downtown in their little white sailor suits and run around. And people knew there was a war on because there was all this stuff going on up at Great Lakes. They had gunnery practice and all different kinds of stuff they were doing there. It was almost a public relations setting for that fort. And there were big buildings built over for, uh, for year-round and all-weather uh, drill practice on the other side of the tracks from Sheridan Road. They're still there, some of them. So that was what it was until then. And and it went on like that. In recent, it's amazing, in recent years, and it's been a very important military fort ever since then. uh, The guy who really built it up was a guy named Moffat. That's why we have a Moffat Road in Lake Bluff, because Admiral Moffat, who went on to sort of invent aircraft carriers and everything, he was the big promoter of that. So by 1991, 92, 93, in there, Um, When the Democrats took over uh, the White House and Congress, they, after 12 years of of Republicans, a guy was made Secretary of Defense who was a former congressman for Kenosha. Kenosha had just taken it in the nick because they closed American Motors or it had been taken over by Chrysler and American Motors, all those jobs went, you know, gone. So he was looking for employment opportunities for his Kenosha former constituents. He decided that he would close. There were two places where enlisted men in the Navy started out their training. One was San Diego, and one was North Chicago right here, Great Lakes. He closed San Diego, and that doubled the jobs kind of at Great Lakes. And so it made it a much more important station. Now, this was, of course, a decade before uh, 9-11, or no, decade, yeah. Yeah, decade before yeah. 9-11. After 9-11, it might not have seemed like such a great idea to have burned off on San Diego. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You know, because there's no redundancy now, you know. So now, nobody can get into Fort to, to, to the Great Lakes Naval Station, because you know they don't. They don't know who, from who's got a uh, bomb in their beard or something. You know.
1: Right, 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 right.
0: So security is very high. So most of us regular people don't have a good occasion to go and see Great Lakes. But you can see these great Edwin Hill Clark buildings as you make that curve and go down and around, or if you just stop on the road, you can see them, uh, and then turn around and come back. But that makes our tour. There's okay. I'll say a few more things about Great Lakes, then I'll end. Um. Also, a guy came to me at Lake Forest College Archives in the 90s. He'd been poking around before it was, you couldn't poke around there anymore, poking around, and he found gravestones and stuff down in the ravines and indications, he was trying to figure out what that all meant. And so I took some of the names, and I I called somebody I knew at the Newberry Library, Helen Tanner. She was an expert on Great Lakes Indians. And Helen Tanner said, well, you know, there's a famous, what they now call the um, Fort Dearborn Affair. Uh, Until fairly recently, people used to call it the Fort Dearborn Massacre by the Native Americans um, of the military. Some Barney Fife type guy at the fort decided that the safe thing to do would be to abandon the fort and walk to Detroit. If you got a lot of Native Americans that aren't happy around you and you decide to give up your fort and walk along the beach, they got a couple of miles down the beach to about 33rd Street and bam, they were hit. Not Uh, a good idea. What we call it now an affair. It's not fair, it's not PC to refer to it as, uh, but it was basically an ambush. You know, we can call it an ambush, I guess. Yeah. But you can't have an ambush if you don't have somebody stupid exposing themselves, you know, uh, danger. So that's what kind of happened. Helen Tanner says that the British had an outpost somewhere along that shoreline. And when I told her about this at Great Lakes, the signs of British occupation with British names on the stones, she said, whoa, there we go. Uh, That probably was the location of the British outpost. From which this ambush was engineered, at least from the British side. The the, the stupid American side is a different story. But yeah. you know, the, uh, they probably thought they couldn't, they weren't sustainable in their fort. But it would have been much harder to take them out of the fort than when they're walking along the
1: beach, single file.
0: Just think of it. Great moments in military planning. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Everybody, stay inside the tour bus, please.
0: Yeah, walk to <laughs> so. Detroit yeah, with with, with hostels all around you. Yeah, mm-hmm. good idea. Fort Sheridan has all kinds of history connected to it. This guy also reported to me that there probably were, and he, when when he was there, he'd seen remnants of Perry's um, expedition to the South Pole up in the tower there at the fort, at the at the naval training station. So. You know who knows what all is there? It's fascinating, but we haven't any way to find out because it's so tightly secured now. But it's great legendary history. It makes a great cap to the North Shore story, the Great Lakes Naval Training Station.
1: And they don't allow tours in there, right? Security's well, too tight. Well, I think
0: they have a little museum, and occasionally people can get in to see that, but it has to be arranged, you know, very carefully, and everybody vetted. And I don't blame them. I mean, we got our problems with you
1: know. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Every kind of you know
1: crazies. Well, maybe if uh, the great Art Miller led the tour in there, maybe they'd be more open to it.
0: I don't know, but we could. It would be something to try. I mean, I would like to see it again because it's it's been several years. It's been twenty years since I've seen it inside because you just can't go in there. There used to be a club that would rent out to people, the Porta Call Club. Oh, really? And they, you know, because they wanted more income to support their, you know, thing. People had meetings there, but now you can't. You just can't get in there. But we'll see. We'll see. We don't want to have anybody, you know, getting loosey goosey about the Ford about the military installation either. So,
1: <laughs> well, Art, anytime you get the itch to go over there, give me a call. We'll, we'll try I'll, I'll to take see. It. We'll talk to our congressperson. That's that's correct, yep. Mister Schneider. Yep. All right, uh, Art. Thanks for. So well, right, yep, that caps for, that the, for the for the five-episode tour <laughs> that will be put up very shortly upon editing, we cannot okay. wait. Okay. All right, thanks for making me smarter on North Shore history. Thank you for inviting me, yeah. Oh, thanks for listening to the North Shore podcast. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. Let us know what tour you'd like to hear about next for the upcoming shows. Again, I'm Pete, and can be reached at Pete at NorthShorePodcast.com. The link will be in the podcast notes. On behalf of my co-host, Arthur Miller, we thank you for listening. Art classes tour bus is now over. Cue the band.